show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. What are you focusing on these days? What has your attention? What are you allowing to take up your thoughts? Because what we focus on can greatly impact the way that we see the whole of our experience in this life. I'm thinking back to those those posters that you used to see, the magic eye posters. And it just kind of looked like white noise, some uh, just static in a frame, colored static. But if you were to put your focus not on the picture itself, but about five to 10 feet past the picture, not, not over the top of it or to the side of it, but actually look through the picture to about five to 10 feet behind where it actually was and let your focus go deeper than just that surface of the paper. When you were to do that, and it took some practice, but when you were to do that, a different image would pop out. Instead of seeing this static, you would begin to see sharp lines and depth and almost this 3D image that was staring at you in the face. And you're thinking, how did I, how did I not see this before? It was there all along. But if you were to focus in the wrong place, it would just look like noise. Well, here's the thing. You and I have an invitation to focus beyond the noise of our surroundings, of our immediate uh, contexts, and to find Christ in the midst of that, to find him as our focal point deeper than and beyond that picture that's presented to us of colored chaos. We're invited to focus on him through the midst of that chaos to see a clearer picture of his will in the midst of this. And today's gospel kind of points to that in a certain way. Uh, They've just been, he and the apostles, doing ministry, active ministry among the people. And then he says to them, let's cross over to the other side of the water. And so they left the crowd, they all got in the boat, uh, and, and the other boats were all with them. And as they were on the water going to the other side at the invitation of Jesus, a violent squall came up and the waves were breaking over the boat so that it was already filling up, the Gospel of Mark tells us. And Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who is this whom even the wind and sea obey? We often look at the apostles and we think, Oh, if I had Jesus right with me, I would never doubt like they did. And yet the truth of the matter is we have Jesus in a more profound way, because we're not just experiencing Jesus right next to us where we can touch and walk alongside him. We actually have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us by virtue of our baptism. We have it in a more profound way, a more profound experience with the Holy Spirit because of 
our confirmation. And then we also have the enduring and ongoing presence of Christ with us in the Eucharist, not only for us to adore, but also for us to receive. And as we receive him, we are made into his likeness more and more fully. We have Jesus in a way the apostles never uh, had until after the resurrection, right? We have this amazing grace that has been given to us, and yet we look at the wind and the waves around us and the colorful noise and cacophony of everything in our world. And I've heard it I put it a thousand different ways. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not see the turmoil of our age? Do you not see all of the things in our family and in our nation and in our state and in all of the, the cacophonies of life, of all of the frustrations of life? Do you not see that we are perishing? And Jesus' response to us is the same as it was to the, the disciples all those years ago. Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? This has been a growing edge for me personally because I can get so overwhelmed when things don't appear to be going right, when they don't appear to be in line with what I know to be true. It can get just a little bit uh, overwhelming. And, uh, and my growing edge lately has been this letting go of what I think it should look like and putting my focus about five to 10 feet beyond the picture, looking into it to find Christ's presence in the midst of it, to find that he really is there. He really is there, even if it doesn't make any sense to me why the picture looks the way it does, even though it looks like noise and static and ugliness, I know that there is something behind and within that picture that God's aware of, that Christ is in control of. And so I can say, okay, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I will find you in this. And this has been my growing edge lately. It goes back to this, um, this statement by St. Julian of Norwich. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. You know, I, I want to have control over it. I want to uh, determine where it goes and be active in the midst of it. And sometimes I just have to realize that I have no control over the wind and the waves. I can't do anything about it, but I can trust that Christ who is in the boat with me, that he is able to calm the wind and the waves. And I don't need to get terrified uh, because I know that he's here. This goes back to that poem that uh, we've talked about several times on here from the breviary of St. Teresa of Avila. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing. God is unchanging. And we want to look and say, well, yeah, I know you're unchanging, God, but look at the situation here. This is changing and this is wrong and this is not according to your will. What are you going to do about it? What can I do about it? And I need to make this thing right. And the poem goes on. All things are passing. God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. I want all these other things to be set right so that they'll 
bring me some satisfaction so that I can rest in the knowledge of the truth. But patience obtains all things. I don't have to see the end result of it to say, okay, God, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And if we get to this place, not so much being fatalistic and saying, well, I'm not going to do anything, rather resting in the sufficiency of God and finding in him our focus and our strength from that place of calm assuredness, from that place of resting in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, from that place, then we can begin following the promptings of the Holy Spirit to make a change in the world around us. But it starts with having a proper focus. If we're focused on the winds and the waves, we're going to get overwhelmed. But if we're focused on Jesus, who's in the boat with us, in the midst of the cacophony, not far off and distant and hard to get to, but right there in the stern of the boat with us, then we can see the wind and the waves for what they are and to have them in their proper context, to realize that they're an opportunity for God's presence to be made known. Now, all of this is to get us to a certain place for our conversation today. All of this is for us to to have a starting point of fixing our gaze on Jesus and not on the winds and the waves that seem overwhelming to us. This is the case when we're looking at evangelization, when we're looking at uh, dealing with the culture at large, which can feel frightening sometimes. This is also uh, important for us to have a proper perspective and a proper focus when we're dealing with conflict, whether that conflict be uh, internal to the faith or external to the world around us, a starting place of recognizing that in the midst of this cacophony, Jesus is in the boat with us. And from his place in the boat with us, uh, we don't have to get worked up. We don't have to make any specific situation come to pass. All we have to do is turn to Jesus and offer him that situation and recognize that he's the one and the only one who can calm the winds and the waves. Today, we're going to be looking at a very specific aspect of of the results of putting our focus in the right place and specifically looking at how we have difficult conversations. How do we handle disagreement and conflict properly? Very often, these kinds of conversations are for us, those boat situations of winds and waves. How can we uh, have a holy conversation dealing with conflict, dealing with disagreement? Uh, To look into that today, we're going to be talking with Jen Fitz. uh, And by way of illustration, we're going to talk about one of the contentious disagreements we had on social media this week. Deacon Stephen Gradanis, who we've had out here on the show before, mentioned this thing about Amazing Grace, uh, the hymn. And of course, you know, anytime there's a few topics that you're just guaranteed to generate some interest uh, and some some controversy. And Amazing Grace is one of those things, surprisingly. Um, so he was talking about it. And of course, I brought in my understanding of uh, the things that bugged me just a little bit about the hymn, having come from Protestantism into uh, Catholicism. And I was I was 
roundly corrected for my my poor grammar uh, for because this my misunderstanding was based on whether something was an adverb or a something else, and I, I can't explain it. But my guest today can because she's the one who corrected me. Um, we're, we welcome again Jen Fitz, who's the author of the how-to book for evangelization available on OSV Press. We had her on the show to talk about that book a while ago. Today, we're going to talk about this contextualization and doing everything that we can, everything within our power to avoid misunderstanding and miscommunication because what we carry and what we are communicating is something so precious that we want to make sure not to get in its way. Jen, thank you for joining us again today on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my goodness. So uh, let's just break down this how precious did that grace appear the hour Here. I first believed? I, you know, Coming from my tradition, <clears throat> there was a lot of emphasis put on the hour I first believed. And right. I am not alone in my, in my tradition as having interpreted that as the hour I first believed being the trigger for that grace appearing. But you let me know that the appearance was already there. The grace was already there. It just suddenly appeared to him because of the lack of an L-Y. Right. So when we say something appeared, uh, I, I didn't want to go into the grammar, but I guess I'll try. Oh, come uh, on. Sometimes I teach English, not that often, but it's been a while. Uh, so did something, or are we describing how something appeared, meaning what it looked like, you know, uh, uh, you you appeared uh, so so happy to see me. Yeah. That's how you looked, right? Versus, uh, is it the manner in which you showed up? Mm-hmm. You you showed up so happily when I called you that I realized you didn't mind being woken up at five in the morning. Uh, probably not. Uh, so 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 two different possible meanings of the word appearance. And as uh, uh, I think it was Richard Dorflinger from. Um, longtime pro-life uh, activist who weighed in on that conversation pointed out that the author of the song, the composer, um, had a, uh, a, a strong conversion experience. Mm-hmm. So your, your reading on this uh, is, is a possibility, and, the, and, and as you and I talked about, sometimes we use um, ad- adjectives, uh, you know, I feel good right. instead of the adverb, I feel well, and, and so it's always possible that that is what the author was doing uh, in that poetry. Uh, but that there is another and, you know, perfectly grammatical, uh, really a better grammar um, reading of that line, which is that it's not that, uh, you know, how precious did that grace appear isn't about uh, that grace did appear at this moment um, and it wasn't there before at this moment, the hour I first believed uh, but rather how suddenly at that moment it appeared precious to me for the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I finally saw it that way when I hadn't before. Um, and, and like you, I, I, don't, I think you said you experienced as a, as a Protestant that one-time conversion, and my conversion, reversion to the Catholic faith was also a one-time thing. Uh, so I can appreciate the point of view. Uh, I also know that suddenly, in if you have one of these you know, mo- you know, sudden conversions that 
grace does suddenly take on a value you had never valued before. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I, I grew up Methodist. I actually didn't have that uh, that ah, one moment, okay. and it was and it was stressful to me as I was around people who were asking for it. Uh, when, mm-hmm. when was that moment? I, I don't know. No. Uh, but let's <laughs> let's take on. Yeah. There's a reason we're talking about right. this, and the reason is, um, insofar as we are able, we ought to go about making a, making room for people's misunderstandings and not just automatically assuming bad faith. Right. Exactly. There, and of course, in our discourse today, we see a lot of that. We see a lot of well, the, this other person is responding in this way because, and all of a sudden, our we we become in some way mind readers and and soul readers that we can uh, pinpoint not only the uh, the effects of someone's action and belief and speech, but we can actually pinpoint, uh, so we think, the motives for that. Um, of course, this is not healthy, and this is what's led to the just the massive amounts of polarization that's gone on today. You've recently been a part of uh, this little conference slash discussion on what we can do uh, as as individuals, as uh, as evangelists, as missionary disciples, as people in the world today, to uh, to have a good discourse, to to make space for mis- people's different point of view and to avoid that kind of misunderstanding. Um, what led you to that kind of action of actually getting involved in, in meddling in people's discussions and trying to direct <laughs> those discussions in a healthy way rather than just sitting back and shaking your head and saying, the world is never going to change? <laughs> well, you know, there's a need for it. And uh, you know, I had taught debate uh, to high school students some years ago. And so that awareness of when we commit these uh, fallacies in our arguments and in our discussion uh, has always been in my mind. I've written about it uh, a little bit at uh, Pacios in particular. And then uh, Sherry Antonetti, another Catholic writer, uh, she, she recognized the need in a, a very profound way and reached out to anybody who would be willing to join her. And I was one of her um, unwitting victims and fell for it. And we, we put together what turned into a fantastic kind of a conference workshop retreat, a great weekend. And we have been you know, really moved by the, the level of support from all different directions, from conservative and more liberal Catholics across the spectrum. Our closer was the poetry editor at America Magazine, but our openers uh, were, you know, completely other end of the spectrum theologically. And it was uh, really just people coming who, uh, you know, Catholics of goodwill. Uh, We had writers, we had uh, readers, we had people who just realized uh, these, these serious issues do matter. These theological debates matter. These political debates matter. We don't need to stop having them. Uh, the disagreements are there to be resolved, not to be ignored, but that we don't have to hate each other in the process. We don't have to be ugly. We don't have to lose our soul mm-hmm. over this. And uh, so we're a small group of people who just want to do it differently. So, Jen, uh, this is uh, really terribly important for our time because it, it seems that we have been um, consolidating our our positions, right? We, everybody's retreating back into their own camps. And the, the picture comes to my mind of the, um, 
and I talked about this on our evening live stream at Compline a couple of weeks uh, earlier this week. Um, the picture comes to my mind of the Christmas truce of 1914 that you have here in World War One. You've got the Germans and the English, and they are firmly entrenched. They are dug in. Nobody's moving. They're firing shots back and forth periodically, but basically they're in their trenches. And on Christmas Eve, the the sounds of Silent Night come wafting over the battlefield. And that common hymn that is beloved by both sides was a starting point for, uh, I think, at least a day, but maybe a multi-day um, truce where the both the German and the English came out of the uh, out of the trenches and ended up playing uh, sports and interacting with one another and seeing the dignity of the other person and eventually they ended up retreating back to their um, their trenches and and finishing out the orders that were given to them. But there was a point of commonality. And they started with that point of commonality and said, we're going to build on this rather than starting off with their different. Well, I mean, they did start off with the differences. That's why they were in the trenches. Um, so often we want to fight from the trenches. And, you know, I, I think of when Pope Francis first was elected, he talked about and that's one of the reasons we have the name of the show. He says, you have to go outside. It's dangerous out there, but that's where the work happens. You could get hurt out there, but we still have to do it. And I think that we have to put ourselves in danger and retreat, come out of our trenches and look for those commonalities rather than constantly duck below the ground level um, every time we hear something that might be a little bit different from what we we would be comfortable with. That is, a, you know, that analogy is uh, fascinating because, and I'm not a military historian, but I was reading a book about combat and about what makes it easier or harder for a soldier to be able to kill in combat uh, and, and written by somebody who that's, that's their field is answering that question in, in the U.S. military. And, and the Christmas truce was cited as an example of the fact that if you know somebody and the better you know them and the less other they are to you, the harder it is to kill that person. And so uh, he says, uh, if I'm remembering the book correctly, that in that truce, uh, that 1914 Christmas truce, the commanding officers were not pleased because suddenly it was much harder for these soldiers to kill each other. Yeah. And because uh, they saw their common humanity. And that is is actually apparently, uh, I'm told, a, a, a challenge in the military is is getting people to get alienated enough from their opponent that they no longer see them as human. And that's what we're doing in our discourse today. We right. are putting up the wall and viewing this person on the other political party or the other theological uh you know, wing of the church and, and saying this person is beyond redemption. This person is just completely alien. They're nothing but evil. And, out and we to no get longer you. see, yes, and out to get you. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no humanity left. And, and so, you know, that's why politicians put their humanity forward. Right. Here, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, whatever it is that helps people relate to you as a person. Um, 
Well, and, and Paul, let's give him the title, yeah. St. Paul, the, the title of a general mm -hmm. in this regard. He's taking sure. us the opposite direction. He's calling us ministers of reconciliation and saying, hey, by the way, your enemy is not flesh and blood, right? Back in Ephesians right. uh, 6. He says, You're, you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness. And remember that the person who is your, uh, your adversary is not the person who's in front of you right? Uh, that, that all people have this inherent dignity, that the, the made in the image of God. This is drawing us into that, that Christmas truce to see the humanity of the, uh, the other person, specifically the person that we would normally be in trenches opposite, right? Mm -hmm. We have nothing right. in common except the dignity of the human person. You might not even recognize that dignity in a number of ways, but you still have it. And so that's going to be our point of, of commonality and connection um, so that I'm, I can extend you some goodwill. You hopefully can extend me some goodwill, but even if not, I'm going to step out of the trench and I'm going to see what we can do in this conversation, pointing not to our disagreements, but to those things. And this is just good evangelization to those <laughs> things that we share in common. Yes. Yes. And, and St. Paul would put on that because he was the guy who was unapproachable, the guy who was deadly and, you know, in his opposition to the church until one day he wasn't. And although we can brush that off by saying, oh, he had this miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, but that conversion stayed with him. He yeah. remained. And in the early church, you know, in those first few days, people were afraid of him. And it took a while to realize, wait a minute, his, his heart has changed and he's no longer murderous. Uh, well, his human soul was a human soul all along, and his need for Jesus was the same all mm -hmm. along. It was always there. Well, and, and even in his conversion story, we see someone step out of the trench, and this is Ananias, <laughs> at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, went to him. And then he went and spent three years uh, studying before he stepped into his role as apostle. I mean, the, but he had someone that took the the crazy step of approaching the murderous person and saying, I'm the guy you've been trying to kill, but I recognize something in you. I recognize by the very strong prompting of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I recognize something in you that's worth the conversation. Right. And I think that the prompting of the Holy Spirit is our, uh, uh, a clue there. What, yeah. what we're looking for is when I'm looking at this person who is, completely incomprehensible to me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can pray and I yeah. can say, Lord, show me, uh, you know, Holy Spirit, show me uh, what, what to pray for to begin with. How do I pray for this person and listen? Uh, when you're praying, listen to the Holy Spirit, giving you things, specific things to intercede for in that person and through a commitment of prayer uh, that, that can help you mm -hmm. overcome uh, the the initial wall that you're feeling towards that person, and then um, you know uh, allow God to show you some things you have in common and some ways that you can relate to each other. We're talking today with Jennifer Fitz. She's uh, author of the book, The How-To Book of Evangelization, available on OSV. You can find more of her work by going to jenniferfitz.com. Join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Talk to me about a discussion you've had recently. Maybe even tell me what you think about Amazing Grace. Hey, why not? Uh, don't go anywhere, though. There's much more to come with this conversation right after the break. 
You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where you explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today with Jen Fitz uh, about, well, I don't know. I kind of misunderstand. No, I'm not misunderstanding. We're talking about avoiding misunderstanding in uh, in evangelization in our discourse with one another. Uh, I had a, um, a person, the chaplain of the seminary when I was a, uh, a Protestant seminary, he he said to me once, uh, I, I wanted to expound in this specific lyric of a song that we were uh, hammering out together. And I wanted to explain a few more things in the bridge. Uh, and I said, well, he said, no, 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 that's too many words. I'm like, well, but, but people might misunderstand. And he said, to be great is to be misunderstood. <laughs> and, and it took me a while. I, it never sat right with me, but it took me a while to realize that there is a difference. He's not saying that um, it is great to be misunderstood, nor is he saying that to be misunderstood is to be great, but just that we have to really acknowledge that, no matter how hard we try, there is no situation in which if I just have the right words, I'm going to assuage all this other person's fears. We're going to just come to, because of my eloquence. We're all going to come to a complete agreement. No, to be, to be great is to be in some way at some point in time misunderstood. Our goal is, is twofold. One, to invite the Holy Spirit into these discussions as much as possible, realizing that he is the one that bridges that gap and uh, and can help direct us in our conversations to avoid misunderstanding as much as possible and and two um, that it's not all on me as much as I need to invest effort in this and I need to invest um, understanding of the other person misunderstanding in some way is just part of the communication process to help us work on our discourse and figure this out a little bit better. We're talking today with Jen Fitz. You can find her work at jenniferfitz.com. She's the author of the how-to book of evangelization available on osv.com. We talked about this in a previous episode, which you can find in the archives over at outsidethewalls.com. But today we're talking about this one single process, this one single thrust and initiative of evangelization, and that's the communication part. Yes. And, and the listening. Uh, listening to understand is the first step. You can't help somebody grow closer to God if you don't understand accurately mm-hmm. where they are now and what it is they're struggling with. Well, and this is one of the big problems with um, an apologetic culture. Uh, I, you know, when you first come into the Catholic Church, you spend a lot of time looking into apologetics because you want the answers that people have questions for, and they're peppering you with questions because they think you're crazy for becoming a Catholic. I get this. And there's a, a, there is a proper place and role for apologetics, but when apologetics becomes our aim, then we listen with the intent to answer rather than listen with the intent to understand. Right. And in fact, the best apologists will tell you, uh, listen to what the person's objection really is because you don't, you're, you're not, firing at them a bunch of facts, you're trying to respond to their real needs and their real concerns. Uh, so apologetics well done is, is absolutely essential to aspects of evangelization, but 
every good apologist will tell you, listen first yeah, and, and understand first. Well, and, and it's the difference between seeing apologetics as a tool in the tool belt rather than the end, the, the end goal. Exactly. Here we are. We are recognizing that our culture is bifurcated. Uh, we have this polarization. We're all in our separate corners uh, to the point that you have two choices in politics. You have two choices in this issue or that, and there is no gray. You have to subscribe to one of these camps. Uh, and so you subscribe to the one that maybe you're closest to, but you don't really completely agree with there either. And we have, we have othered each other to the point that we just snipe at each other across the, uh, across the no man's land from our trenches and never really engage. We see this in, um, in the way that social media operates, that one, social media is designed to do this because it keeps us engaged and online. But two, um, we call our friends lists based on what people say so that we never come across anything that is distressing to us. Uh, and, and this is just going to make discourse harder and harder as we go along. Right. And, and sometimes we do the opposite and we intentionally follow people we know make us furious because Mm -hmm. we take pleasure in being mad and, uh, that's, that's not good either. Uh, but, but this polarization, uh, and talking about listening and understanding, what we tend to do as a result is is some very sloppy thinking where if TL puts out some comment that can be interpreted in two or three different ways, uh, something that maybe is consistent with his party politics, but also really is just common humanity, my tendency might be to say, oh, he's just one of those party guys spouting his stuff that's completely wrong. Uh, this is all part of his secret agenda to, you know, overthrow all that's true and good and beautiful in the world when really he's actually saying something that's our common humanity and, and we can agree on it. And maybe what he's saying has nothing to do with this bill before Congress or, or what. Well, and I would say that we tend to extend to people of our same camp a certain level of uh, or a certain interpretation an interpretive lens. And to people who are in, in any way, they cross the line and they're in that other camp. We have a completely different criteria for how we interpret the things that they say. And so one, we're not being intellectually honest with ourselves. Uh, but two, we, we set ourselves up for failure in communication simply by the way that we listen. So you talked about in the break, um, the catechism gives us some, some steps, some guidance from St. Ignatius to help us in this pathway of communication. So why don't you unpack that for us? Sure. So what we're trying to avoid here is the sin of rash judgment, which is where I am just jumping on condemning something that I think is sinful, but in fact, I don't yet know that it is. And, um, and the evidence, you know, the bar for evidence before we announce something as a sin is, is high. And so St. Ignatius, as quoted in the Catechism under the Eighth Commandment, he, he, he has these four steps for how to proceed through a situation where I think there is a wrong statement to be corrected. And the first one is very simple. It's, can this be read in a favorable way? 
-hmm. So TL tweets something that's, I don't really know exactly what he's driving at. I don't know if it's a response to something he read someplace. And, you know, he and I, we've had it out before in the past. Maybe, uh, maybe he's just totally wrong. And so I, I need to look at the text of that tweet and ask myself, is there a reading of this tweet that's fine, that's unobjectionable? And, and if it is, if, if I can just, if I just take just the plain meeting and I say, you know what, this actually is okay. There's, there's a way to understand this. Maybe he's trying to imply something that it's evil, but that's not what the words say. And if it's not what the words say, if, if, if there is a way I can understand this text that is acceptable, then I'm done. I can let it go. Uh, I don't have to sit there stewing and, and assuming the worst. And in fact, I'm committing a sin against TL to assume the worst about those few words if, uh, until I know for sure one way or the other. And, and for everybody's peace, he said something that was fine. Praise God. You know, miracle, wonderful. So, so that's step one. Mir- miracle. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I hope your listeners aren't listening to you to get outraged, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're a good source for that. Uh, okay, so that's step one. But, but there's always the possibility that the way you put it together, and this is what uh, gets people. I'm going to use Twitter again as an example because this is an area where people will say something. And maybe they meant it as a joke, like genuinely meant it as a joke, not one of those fake jokes. Or maybe it was just a poor choice of words. Um, I got, I, I got uh, called out in a Facebook post for referring to a recipe for baked apples that I had thrown at the bottom of a, a different topic um, because I said there was a whole lot of chopping to do. Well, I was literally talking about slicing apples right but but the words right my, my friend was like "Ooh, that's a little little dark jen i was like well no really just slicing apples that's what we're doing here <laughs> it's a good dessert but uh but no but so so sometimes we say something and the words they're the wrong words mm-hmm. and we just we weren't thinking about you know thinking carefully or there our word has another meaning that we weren't aware of and um and we need some clarification. So that's step two is, is ask for clarification. What, what do you mean by this? Uh, you know, well, what I was trying to say is X, Y, Z. I had an example with a friend uh, recently who shared a very politically uh, charged cartoon. Mm-hmm. And my first impression was, wow, that's really harsh. Well, after talking to her, because I knew she wasn't that type of person. She, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that this cartoon seemed to be implying was not her at all. And, and I asked her, she's like, well, no, I just really feel very strongly about this piece of legislation going through Congress that it's, you know, it's, it's problematic in, in these important financial ways. Uh, and I was like, oh yeah, well, everybody agrees that that's, that's totally reasonable. But she had chosen the wrong illustration that put the blame someplace it didn't need to be put and was hurtful to people. And, and by clarifying, she was able to, you know, remind us, yes, I'm human. I just, you know, I, I I just have concerns about these procedural issues in Congress and, um, you know, but no, I I would never want to hurt my fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, so asking for clarification 
uh, can resolve uh, these things, uh, save us from the sin of rash judgment, because we realize, wait a minute, this person made an error in what they chose to share or how they chose to say it, but it wasn't from a sinful desire in any way, and not from a hurtful desire, not from a desire to you know, cause pain to other people. It just was a mistake. And yeah, you, you give that person that opportunity. So it seems like, and we'll get to the final two steps, but it seems like one of the purposes of this, these four steps of St. Ignatius is to slow down the process and allow us to get all the facts before we get to that point of outrage. Because there is a time and there is a place for righteous anger, but we have just short-circuited that process um, to the place where we just jump straight to outrage, right? We, we're going to skip all the steps uh, in between, and I'm just going to unload on anybody who transgresses this line that they can't see. I can see it. They don't have it in front of them, but I, everybody knows where that line is. So I have, I'm completely justified, we think, in, uh, in correcting this person harshly uh, because they've crossed the line. So St. Ignatius is asking us, to make sure that we're understanding it correctly. Can it be read in a favorable light? Can we extend grace to this other person? Uh, if, if I don't see a way that this could be uh, said properly, then make sure that I'm not the one who's misunderstanding, right? Uh, so that's step one and step two. Let's go through the, the, the final two steps. What does this look like to um, to have a solid, good, holy discourse, right? And 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 I think what you said about slowing down is is right on the nose because number one, we're trying to avoid rash judgment, so that hasty judgment and unreasonable jumping to conclusions. Uh, and number two, through that process of clarification, I'm setting aside my desire to prove the person wrong. What I'm now trying to do is help this person communicate the truth. And so when, and so, so I'm no longer just out to condemn you. I'm, I'm out to help you be somebody who is living in accordance with God's will. And so then we get to number three, charitably correct the error, attempt to. And, and that's our purpose now, right? We're, we're no longer out to quash our enemy we are out to rescue somebody and so uh and this is an area where uh it, it's hard you have to learn i have had to learn and it's a work in process developing the ability to choose your words uh in a way that they will be uh, well received and that is um affirming of whatever is good that builds on whatever relationship you have with this person. Uh, so you, uh, in, in step three, you're saying, okay, we have determined there is an error. By my listening, by my asking for clarification, I have a much better idea of where that error might be. Uh, let me attempt to use my words to uh, gently but effectively, very clearly, help this person to see where they have veered off the path. And... It may or may not work, and knowing that there is step four uh, can put us at a lot of peace mm -hmm. that everything doesn't hinge on this one conversation. It doesn't hinge on this moment. It's not my job 
to save the whole world this afternoon on the internet. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can. Right. You know, but, but, and this is, this is half of it is that uh, in I, my effort to charitably provide an explanation is um, part of not committing a sin against this person mm-hmm. because I'm not committing the sin of assuming that they are incorrigible, assuming that they have good ill will, mm-hmm. assuming they have no desire to know the truth. And so I, I need to say, you know, maybe, maybe they would appreciate my explaining this to them. Yep. And, and I need to use some common sense in, in what yeah. I think would be helpful in that regard. There's a, a phrase that was um, impressed upon me in my youth, that rebuke without relationship breeds rebellion. So we have to ask, do I have the standing to even speak into this person's life in a way that they can receive it without just coming across as a harsh lunatic, right? Um, and if I don't, and it's still worthwhile to correct them, then I really ought to invest in the relationship first, that point Absolutely. of commonality. Um, because that standing is important. Uh, yes. that, that point of, of common understanding and common humanity is important in that process of, of coming to communicate. I love the, the phrase by George Bernard Shaw that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. That we yeah. have to uh, go five steps beyond what we think we've communicated. So uh, we're, we're running out of time here, but that last point uh, the, mm-hmm. is after all of these other things have failed is to then go by any other means, which we as evangelists, you said, means that we go through the process of evangelization. You've got a book on that. The book is available mm-hmm. on our Sunday Visitor Press, osv.com, uh, the how-to book of evangelization. If you're not sure what to do in step four, this book is the way uh, to learn about that. So that we've been talking today with Jennifer Fitz, uh, author of that book. You can find more at jenniferfitz.com. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Jennifer Fitz or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com. While you're there, there's extra content. Each and every week, we record an extra segment, a couple of extra questions with the guest to give to those people who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air week after week. Uh, You can join for as little as $5 a month. To find those extra segments and more information about our Patreon community, go up to OutsideTheWalls.com. On the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. Click that link, look through some of the free segments that are there for you to listen to, and consider becoming part of that support community. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. You can get your own Verbum Library by going to Verbum.com. You can try it free for 30 days, but... Uh, this is the last, I got, I guess the, the first February 1st is the last day of this cycle that you can get it for 15% off. Uh, just go to verbum.com and see what library fits your needs. I use the gold library here on the show and I think that you will love it as well. Our reading from scripture today comes from the gospel of Mark chapter four. Jesus said to the crowds, This is how it is with the kingdom of God. 
It is as if a man were to scatter seed on the land and would sleep and rise night and day. And the seed would sprout and grow. He knows not how. Of its own accord, the land yields fruit, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, he wields the sickle at once, for the harvest has come. He said, To what shall we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use for it? It is like a mustard seed that, when it is sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. But once it is sown, it springs up and becomes the largest of plants, and puts forth large branches, so that the birds of the sky can dwell in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, and they were able to understand it. Without parables, he did not speak to them, but to his own disciples he explained everything in private. There's two points that I want to bring out here. The first is from this first half of the parable, that the, the sower went out to scatter seed on the land and, uh, and went to sleep and uh, would rise night and day, right? And the seed would sprout and grow. He knows not how. Those words right there, he knows not how. We have the opportunity to go out and spread the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to spread and scatter seed on the land. But we're not the ones who make it grow. And we're not the ones who bear the responsibility for any particular outcome. A lot of times I think we, we are so bound and determined um, to, to win the argument because we feel like it rests on our shoulders. But what rests on our shoulders is just the seed bag, that we go out and we spread the seed. Maybe we have a, a conversation that cultivates or that waters, but when it grows, we know not how. It's not of our own doing. It's something that God brings to pass, and we just have to be faithful workmen in the field. The second thing I want to point out is that he spoke to all the people in parables, but that last line, to his own disciples, he explained everything in private. Are you making time to be private with the Lord so that he can explain everything to you? Are you taking the time either in contemplative prayer or in time and adoration or in some way that you are getting away with Christ in a solitary place to be his disciple so that he can speak to you and explain to you and nourish your soul in a way that he reserves for those who will come away to a quiet place with him? So I want to encourage you. Yes, be the workman, be active, do the work of sowing seed, but realize that you're not the one who makes it grow. And realize that just as important as the work is that invitation for you to cross over to the other side, to come away to a quiet place so that he can explain all of these things to you in private. Our reading from Church History today comes from a commentary on the Psalms by St. Hilary of Poitiers. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is good and pleasant for brothers to dwell in unity because when they do so, 
their association creates the assembly of the church. The term brothers describes the bond of affection arising from their singleness of purpose. We read that when the apostles first preached, the chief instruction they gave lay in this saying, the hearts and minds of all believers were one. So it is fitting for the people of God to be brothers under one Father, to be united under one Spirit, to live in harmony under one roof, to be limbs of one body. It is pleasant and good for brothers to dwell in unity. The prophet suggested a comparison for this good and pleasant activity when he said, It is like the ointment on the head which ran down over the beard of Aaron upon the collar of his garment. Aaron's oil was made of the perfumes used to anoint a priest. It was God's decision that his priest should have this consecration first, and that our Lord too should be anointed, but not visibly, by those who were joined with him. Aaron's anointing did not belong to this world. It was not done with the horn used for kings, but with the oil of gladness. So afterward, Aaron was called the anointed one as the law prescribed. When this oil is poured out upon men of unclean heart, it snuffs out their lives. But when it is received as an anointing of love, it exudes the sweet odor of harmony with God. As Paul says, we are the goodly fragrance of Christ. So just as it was pleasing to God when Aaron was anointed priest with this oil, so it is good and pleasant for brothers to dwell in unity. Now the oil ran down from his head to his beard. A beard adorns a man of mature years. We must not be children before Christ, except in the restricted scriptural sense of being children in wickedness, but not in our way of thinking. Now, Paul calls all who lack faith children because they are too weak to take solid food and still need milk. As he said, I fed you with milk rather than solid food for which you were not yet ready and are still not ready. That reading comes from a commentary on the Psalms by Hilary of Poitiers and is encouraging us to a fraternal bond of unity as Christians. This is so important for us because very often the disagreements that we have are with other people who are within the body. They're with other people who share the same baptism and share the same graces of confirmation. And we, as much as is possible for us to do, need to live in unity. And maybe that means scattering a little bit of seed. Maybe that means uh, cultivating an understanding with one another. Maybe that means praying for one another. But whatever it means, it means that unity is something that is pleasing to God. And therefore, unity is something that we should strive for in every way possible. Let us pray that God would give us the ability to see him in the midst of all of the cacophony of life and to focus on him and to find unity with one another through our belonging to him. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Paige and Kent Keithley and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. 
All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.